we have our guests on the line. We have Dorotha Ferraro from South Peninsula Hospital. Are you there, Dorotha? Good morning, Jay. I am here and can hear you just fine. Oh, terrific. I got you as well. Uh, and we have, we have a special guest this week. It's Dr. Christina Tuomi, the Infection Prevention Director at South Peninsula Hospital, and uh, she has a new position, Chief Medical Officer. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks. Right. Uh, well, Nurse Lauren Carroll is not joining us today, so we will um, uh, move on. Uh, Dr. Tuomi, let me, uh, let me ask you about uh, what you're seeing um, you know, in the world of COVID from your perspective. Maybe we can start there. All right. So what we're seeing is certainly an increase in cases that uh, seem to be associated with Omicron, um, that definitely throughout the United States and preparing for that in Alaska. We're seeing some updates in the recommendations for treatment for patients on an outpatient basis um, based off of the changes that Omicron has uh, has has occurred with the new variant. Um, so we have some new treatment guidelines uh, that the National Institutes of Health have put out um, for the best treatments for patients that require treatment and are at high risk, so. Mm -hmm. The CDC has come out with uh, a change in um, recommendations for isolation after uh, an infection. Could you talk about those a little bit? They've reduced the time from 10 days to five days if you're asymptomatic. Could you could you right. cover right. that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So the CDC came out with that recommendation, I think, early last week. Um, and, and the recommendation is if you are positive and you need to isolate, to isolate for five days um, and your isolation can end at that point in time um, as long as your symptoms have improved and you're fever-free for greater than 24 hours without the use of any fever-reducing medications. Um, the big important step on that that a lot of, I think, people are missing, and it's not reported a lot, is the remainder of that five days, you know, it used to be 10 days, is that you should remain masked at all times when you're around other people. Um, so they recommend not going to restaurants or not going to gyms, maybe not resuming all of your previous activities, but at least you're not isolated in your home any longer. Oh, okay. Um, what was the reasoning behind making this change? Is it because they found that the disease is um, manageable at that point? Um, what, what was behind yeah. it, do you know? Yes. So some of the science behind it is that, um, you know, after day five, the likelihood of having um, viral shedding that is infectious to other people's um, decreases significantly, not 100%, but that that risk does decrease after day five, and it continues to decrease until that day 10. Um, so the thought was, you know, we could certainly get more people out of isolation uh, make it a much more manageable situation and still keep people safe, especially with the masking recommendation for the remainder of the five days. Oh, okay. Um, this has certainly put a, put a new spin on uh, businesses which have been, you know, so affected by 
isolation and quarantine both. Uh, you know, people who are exposed and people who get it. Uh, you know, it's been a been a drain on businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've all felt it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Omicron and uh, its behavior? It the, the cases are skyrocketing, uh, but hospitalizations have trailed. Uh, mm-hmm. What's what's behind that? So yeah, Omicron, the variant um, with the changes in its spike protein, is more more easily trans transmitted between folks. Um, and we saw that in South Africa, and we saw that in Europe, and now we're seeing it throughout the United States. And so um, it's just easier to transmit between between people. It's more effective at getting into the system and and then becoming infectious. Um, the bright side of that, at least so far, you know, we're still looking at the data, is that it may not be as as virulent. Um, so, and that means it may not cause as severe infections. Um, it does, you know, the data is still lagging behind that. Hospitalizations always follow an increase in infections, so we still don't have all the full information. Um, but it does, you know, we're crossing our fingers that it continues to follow that pattern. Um, the science behind it is they've looked at the effect of the Omicron variant in the uh, mucosal tissues, and it seems to be much more active in the upper airway as opposed to the lower airway, which could mean that it does not cause as many pneumonias or severe lower airway disease. Um, but again, like I said, we're, we're more information to come, and it seems like every time we say something definitive, we're re-educated and perhaps surprised. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're crossing yeah. our fingers. <laughs> Isn't that the way the Spanish flu um, ended? It uh, the later waves. I, I, yeah. I guess after the third really strong wave, the waves mm-hmm. after that. Uh, were just weaker and weaker, and you know there was no vaccine back then, so clearly it went away. Uh, yeah, can we be seeing something like that here? So there are some hopes that that might be the case. Um, like I said, it's it's more to come. We'll always the future is hard to predict, um, but we're it, it, it's a possibility. That is how Spanish flu became endemic. Um, so you know the virus will never go away, just like the flu never went away in that type of a situation, it just becomes endemic. Meaning it's uh, always not pa- there. It's always there, yeah. There are periods that it'll be more active, um, areas that it might pop up in more, just like we have a flu season, um, similar similar patterns like that. Hmm. Okay. From what I've read that uh, the um, fully vaccinated and people who have boosters are um, still doing pretty good against the Omicron variant. Is, is mm-hmm. that uh, what you're seeing? Yep, that's certainly what the data is showing, is that those that are fully vaccinated and boosted uh, are less likely to have severe disease and have hospitalization, so that risk is lower. Um, you know, you hear reports that most people that are hospitalized um, and in the ICU are those that could not be fully vaccinated or did not have a booster. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, similar to Delta. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I have a 
follow-up there. But first, I want to mention our mm -hmm. phone number, 235-7721. Uh, this is the COVID brief. We have Dr. Christina Tuomi and uh, Dorotha Ferraro, both from South Peninsula Hospital, on the line here. My follow-up about the, um, you know, a mild, say you get a mild case, uh, breakthrough case, mm -hmm. um, could mild COVID turn into long COVID? Uh, as easily as, uh, you know, a full severe case of COVID could? Certainly. It, it does. Um, it, it is hard to predict who will have long COVID-type symptoms. Um, so we, we don't know 100%. Um, again, that's, that's just something that we're still learning so much about that we just don't have a lot of, a lot of good information about it. But um, we're learning more more every every day it seems like there's more information mm -hmm. could you describe a little bit about long covid what systems are affected and how um it, you know it seems to be kind of a multi-system sort of um uh, situation um, a lot of patients have kind of a prolonged brain fog or just uh, difficulty concentrating um, many patients have increased anxiety um, have depression as a result of it body aches, um, chronic shortness of breath, um, uh, just it, just like everything's being dragged down. Um, so uh, there was a great uh, presentation about a month ago that was provided to the local Alaska healthcare providers by a physician from Mayo Clinic who has been working and treating patients and helping to not only recognize it, but figure out what treatments are best for it. So um, we're definitely all still on the lookout for it. And if people have concerns, please reach out to your provider so that we can, we can look into things and see if there's treatments that we can help you with. Mm -hmm. We have a caller, Brian, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. um, my question, oh, there's an echo here. So my question is um, about the people who are vaccinated who are getting infected. That is happening, yes? Yes, that does happen. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then are they also transmitting it to other people? It does appear that with Omicron, those that are vaccinated are just as likely to transmit. That's correct. Um, past vaccines like polio and stuff like that, how does that stop the disease versus the vaccine right now that doesn't seem to be stopping That is a very good question. Um, and I would let you know that I'm not an expert on vaccines. Um, what I have uh, learned is that it's a lot of the variants, so it's the changes within the virus that have made it able to evade some of that vaccine efficacy. Um, and that wasn't necessarily seen with the polio virus. Um, so, some of those that we've been able to uh, treat and decrease the frequency with other vaccines, it's because of the not having as many changes within the organism where 
were uh, preventing with the vaccine. If I can um, also chime in, good morning, Brian. This is Dorotha Ferrero, the PIO for the hospital. I'd also like to um, comment on the, the question, because boy, the, the, it's a great question and we all kind of scratch our heads and ask new questions every day. Um, the one thing that um, the fully vaccinated, um, being fully vaccinated is con contributing to the goal of um, reducing the um, overwhelming burden on healthcare. And that was always one of the really important goals that the main goal at many times in the pandemic was to um, um, reduce the, the burden or the um, um, need for capacity um, at the hospitals. And it really, so far, vaccines really seem to be doing that. We did look at um, the, the number of hospitalizations, even at our hospital vaccinated versus not vaccinated, and vaccines clearly um, seem to be keeping people out of the hospital. So from mm -hmm. that perspective, vaccines are appear to be working. Would there be a possibility that that's due to these new mRNA vaccines versus the old school uh, denuded vaccines? Uh, it, it's so it's Dr. Twami. It's hard to say, um, you know, the, because the mRNA vaccine that we're using and, and really the the Janssen vaccine were were both seemed to be helpful in reducing the severity of disease and the hospitalizations. So, um, you know, if you look at the flu vaccines that are available, they work very similarly um, in that they do prevent flu, but there are breakthrough infections, but those breakthrough infections tend to be mild. So it's a, a similar case, but also with different types of vaccines. Sure, it would be, there'd be some interesting to find out like uh, what percentage of breakthrough of vaccinated people. Is there data on that? I don't have, I'm sure there is. Um, it's something that uh, certain areas of the country have been monitoring, but um, is is not complete, unfortunately. But well, yeah, um, it's a yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's not a number that I, I see frequently, but um, I know that Kaiser Family Foundation has been one of the, the groups that has monitored what breakthrough percentages are. So the benefits of the vaccine are to keep the caseload low for hospitals and keep people from dying. Um, but yeah. And but the transmissibility part is still unknown. Um, so I, I was looking at the CDC website today earlier and now I don't know where it was. It was under the vaccines section. Um, and, and they spoke to the fact that, you know, with Omicron, um, th that it does seem that vaccinated people do have an increased risk of still shedding the virus that's infected. I will say, though, because you don't have the severity of disease, you're not as ill as long. So your viral shedding period is shorter, which... Okay. You know, it, yeah, which means that you're less likely to spread it to more people. So there, there is still a benefit. Um, it's just, you know, it's not preventing somebody who's vaccinated from spreading it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the information. Yeah. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for the call, Brian. 
Our phone number two three five seven seven two one. If uh, you'd like to uh, call in with a question, um, Drotha, we had a question texted in. Uh, what percentage of people being tested are coming up positive these days at SBH? Well, we um, combine all of the testing into one weekly report, meaning that folks test, the majority of tests go through the test and vaccine clinic on Bartlett Street, but then we also do testing for ER patients and hospitalized patients as well. And so in the week ending yesterday, um, we were at a 7% positivity rate. We had done 614 tests, and that was up almost 100 over the prior week. So testing is very much picking up. We had done 614 tests and um, 40 of those were positive. So we were at about a 7% positivity rate. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a question emailed in to me here. Uh, it's talking about the costs of uh, COVID. It says the average cost for hospitalization is about $20,000. And they're curious if costs of testing and more importantly, hospitalization costs have been covered locally and uh, nationally, uh, either through personal insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, or uh, tax dollars. He's wondering uh, how all that's been paid. Uh, do you have an idea? Well, for hospitalizations, I am guilty that I did not research that and figure that one out. Um, the majority of folks hospitalized, um, I know, are utilizing um, insurance benefits, but I, I don't know what their um, their their part of portion. Um, as far as the testing goes, so far in the pandemic, um, the boy, I, I, I can't say all, but the vast majority of supplies for testing has been covered by the state of Alaska, the federal U.S. government, some FEMA grants. Um, we have a pretty a pretty complicated spreadsheet here of of grants that are paying for different things, but. Regardless, the, the majority of the supply cost has been covered under various pandemic um, funding. The labor costs is a little bit different. We do, a, again, a patchwork. Um, the hospital covers some of the costs for processing the, the labs. Um, we do have a community health equity grant through the state of Alaska that covers the cost of the nurse that works at our vaccine and testing clinic. Um, we also have some HRSA, which is basically rural health funding. We have some HRSA funding to um, help cover some of the extra costs for being open seven days a week. So it's a it's a, a bit of a patchwork between the hospital um, providing kind of the foundation of people and then some of the supplemental funding providing the cost for the supplies. And um, we are pretty creative in, um, I think we have three or four different, correct me, Dr. Tommy, um, three or four different platforms that we rely on for testing um, at any given time so that if supplies run short in one particular module, like a Cepheid or a Q, or we have different modules that we run. And um, if supplies are running short in the supply chain on one, then we can shift over to the to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, the follow-up from the, uh, the person who wrote the question to me, uh, is curious generally do unvaccinated people in uh, unvaccinated hospital patients uh, have more liability for charges for treatment is there any disparity there uh, if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated 
there is no disparity, no, no, nobody's treated differently, nobody's charged differently, nobody is um, housed differently other than for infection prevention purposes. Um, no, nobody's, nobody's treated differently whether they're vaccinated or not as far as the administration side or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Tuomi, could you, we got a question here uh, seeking the, um, the uh, difference between quarantine and isolation. Could you go over that for us? Absolutely. It is confusing. Uh, so quarantine is what someone does when they've been exposed to the virus but are not yet ill. So that's when you're at risk for, con uh, at risk for becoming ill because of an exposure. Um, and so that, that also was updated with those new CDC guidelines. And so that is that five-day period. And if you do not develop symptoms, then after five days, you can come out of quarantine and remain masked until day 10. Isolation is when you have been, uh, you become symptomatic and you test positive for the virus. So that means you're ill with the virus or you have a positive test with the virus. Um, and that again, like we spoke to earlier, is the five days and then 10 days fully masked. Mm -hmm. What do you call it when someone avoids all contact so they don't get sick and bog down the hospitals? <laughs> right. So that's, <laughs> that's yes, isolation if you're very ill. Um, and then I also, whenever I talk about isolation, I want to make sure that people realize that that does not mean you cannot get care. Um, if you are feeling so ill that you need to see a doctor or be seen by the ER. We just ask that you give us a call so that we can be prepared for you before you come. Mm -hmm. uh, doctor, I was reading an article yesterday, uh, it was the other day. Anyway, the author argued that we should consider uh, COVID as, um, as bad as polio, you know, th that we should treat it um, uh, the same way, you know, with uh, extreme measures of uh, masking and mandates and uh, all these things, uh, because he he feels that it it'll just keep going on and on, uh, people getting infected over and over. What, what do you think? Um, that's 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 hard to say. <laughs> um, I think that there are there's a wide range of what people think is the best way to move forward with um, living post COVID and living in a COVID world or trying to eradicate COVID from the world. Um, I think that um, it, it's the guidance that we have is good guidance at this time, and I think we've also been really good at at adjusting that guidance when we see the indicators to adjust. Um, yeah, I don't think that there is one crystal ball that tells us the best way to move forward. Um, and I think that that changes depending on the situation. Um, we've had to adjust really quickly to Omicron that could, because it was only a month ago that we were really hearing about it for the first time. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. and, and we've made big adjustments because of that. Yeah. But it's, it's inarguable that there is a way to defeat COVID. I mean, if we just clamp down isolation, you know, sent everybody home for two weeks, mm -hmm. it would be a good chance that we would defeat it, right? Yes, except that that would be that would that would be worldwide, you know, ah, so that okay. that 
because there's COVID throughout the world. And so that would be 100% worldwide. And I just don't see that as a feasible option. Yeah, it's yeah, just not yeah. in the United States or just not in Alaska. It's everywhere. So True. Uh, the state section of epidemiology uh, the other day um, forwarded something from the Centers for Disease Control about um, monoclonal antibodies, none of which I'm able to pronounce. So could you maybe talk about the, uh, sure. the deal with monoclonal antibodies, especially in light of Omicron, because uh, the note from CDC was, well, one of these is better than the others. So could you talk about that a little? Right, so what they found with the monoclonal antibodies, uh, we had been using one called Regencove and one called Bamlanivimab, Estivimab. So we had two different options that we were using for folks during the Delta surge that were very effective. Um, what they found with Omicron is that they were not as effective in treating it. Um, and so the recommendation now is to use the monoclonal antibody called citrovimab. Um, and because that's the one that's been shown to be effective. So because we are in a place where Omicron is likely the dominant uh, variant that people are becoming infected with, the recommendation is to only use the citrovimab because it's more effective. Hmm, okay. Uh, we have um, two callers on the line. Let's go to line one first. Hi, you're on the air. Is that me? It is you. Hi, this is me. Yeah, earlier you were talking about um, the difference between quarantine and isolation, and I was just wondering where testing could be useful in there if you're pretty sure you've been exposed or how long do you have to wait to test? Absolutely. So for, and I always have to, because this has changed, <laughs> I'm looking it up again. So when you are isolating, um, you have already had a positive test or you're awaiting a test and you're symptomatic um, and you, you have a positive test, uh, they do not recommend retesting to get oh, you out know, of... You know, ma'am, I've been through that. I'm talking more about when you think you've been exposed. Oh, for quarantine. quarantine. Okay. Okay. So for with quarantine, they recommend testing at day five. Okay. For the quarantine. And that's also if, if it's available, but that is helpful if you don't have symptoms and you have a negative test to know that you can come out of quarantine at day five. Thank you. And my other question is about the spike protein. Mm -hmm. I had, I learned a little bit something yesterday, making some calls about why the Omicron was more transmissible, and I was told that there are 50 spike proteins compared to six in the Delta. Is that true? Uh, there were, I, I can't tell you if it's the exact, the exact number, but there were many more changes within the spike protein, and that's what made it more transmissible. That is true. And do you have any knowledge about the amino acids involved? I don't. I'm sorry. Okay. Not off the top of my head. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye-bye. Oh, that's a great uh, series of questions there. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we have another caller. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, was that me? It is. Hi, Michael Shalek here. 
Uh, I just wanted to comment. I've been following these discussions, and this morning I was getting the impression that uh, people are saying that the vaccines aren't really that effective, and that's not true. The vaccines are very effective, and they're effective against Delta. They're effective against Omicron. They're not perfect, but they are very effective, and they're effective against preventing disease, and they're effective against preventing transmissibility. Again, they're not perfect, but they do work. They're some of the most effective vaccines that we've ever developed. And the only way to get this pandemic under control is to get a significant number of people vaccinated or exposed to the disease. There's no other way. Testing helps us manage and isolate Testing doesn't cure anyone. Testing doesn't stop the disease. Isolation will. Social distancing, masking helps. But the most important thing is to get vaccinated. And overall, you're still 12 times less likely to have severe disease if you're vaccinated. So my message to our community is everybody should get vaccinated. Thank you, Michael. It's Dorotha, and that was I. I um, feel that South Peninsula Hospital agrees with um, certainly everything that you said. I, I'm sorry if you were getting the message that um, otherwise, um, and that is why we continue to offer vaccines seven days a week. And so, if I can um, just recap the availability of vaccines in our community and who is eligible. So, the Pfizer is one of the mRNA vaccines and it is recommended that people get um, um, boosted for their Pfizer five, at least five months after their second dose. So note that that is a change from what maybe we're familiar to hearing. So Pfizer is five months after your second dose, and that is um, anyone 12 years of age and older are eligible for the Pfizer booster as well as the general um, vaccine for Pfizer as well. And then Moderna, the other mRNA vaccine, that is at six months after your second dose. So um, yeah, those two- Can I just two... make one more comment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been vaccinated and boosted here and tested. And the service that you guys have been provided is just outstanding. Nothing has cost any money. It's fast, efficient. I mean, it's crazy for people not to take advantage of a free life-saving vaccine. So thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for that uh, great reminder for everybody. I, everybody should get vaccinated, and then you should get boosted, uh, you know, as long as your doctor agrees and your body can handle it. Uh, we have another caller. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I have a Yep, question. it's you. I'm getting an echo. Uh, I'm uh, old enough to be considered uh, at risk. I've had the first two shots. I had a third shot of my, my condition. When I get it? I'm sorry, I missed the last part of that. Uh, were you asking when you should get your booster? That's correct. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Tuomi? 
Um, so I, I want to make sure that I heard it right. Completed his first two series and then was told he needed a third dose. Um, and so if I'm understanding correctly, so probably immunocompromised and needed a third dose, which was a full series for someone in that situation. And then as Dorotha had just mentioned, it depends on which series he completed. So Pfizer would be five months after completion of the, the final dose in the series. And then Moderna would be six months after the completion of that final dose. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for calling. The uh, CDC also had some um, new recommendations for shots for kids. Is that right? Dorotha, do you have information on that? Um, it was just approved yesterday by the CDC that they recommend that anyone 12 years of age and older um, go ahead and get a booster, but only Pfizer is the eligible brand for that. So individuals um, 12 years of age and older who have already completed their Pfizer series then are encouraged to get boosted um, after five, five months beyond. And that is for 12 years of age and older. Mm -hmm. Can we and talk about can, the... Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just um, going to reiterate that um, we, we do offer um, vaccines at the vaccine clinic seven days a week, but for the um, adolescent um, group, we do encourage um, appointments and we do those on Tuesdays and Saturdays, but otherwise seven days a week is for um, uh, ages 16 and up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Dr. Tuomi, can I ask you about, um, well, we were talking about monoclonal antibodies. Uh, could you talk about the pills that uh, everybody's talking about now? Uh, where do they fit in the, in the treatment scheme? Yeah, so there's two new EUA, so that's emergency use authorization, authorization approved antiviral pills. One's called Paxlovid and one is called molnupiravir. Um, and they have a similar indication as do the monoclonal antibodies. And so they are for folks that have an increased risk of developing severe disease or being hospitalized. Um, and the recommendation is to begin those within five days of symptom onset. So that, that is one big difference um, between those and the monoclonal antibodies, the, the, which can go up to 10 days. So the pill form is to be started within five days of symptom onset. Um, and they each have a, a slightly different course and, and different recommendations for how you take them, but um, are, are found to be effective in reducing the risk of severe disease. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have any calls on the line right now, and I'm pretty much out of questions. It's 936. Uh, Dorotha or uh, Dr. Tuami, do uh, either of you have any final comments? I'll let Dorotha go. <laughs> well, um, let's see. I gave the I gave our numbers um, that we're still doing Mabs testing, vaccine. Um, we are still seeing folks um, visit the ER for um, COVID-related. Um, problems, though those numbers have leveled off a lot. So I would just um, 
um, remind folks that we do require masking, um, universal masking here at the hospital as well as all the clinics and stuff. So thank you very much for doing that. And we do offer medical grade masks during your visit here. So um, feel free to um, put yours away if you like when you come and just um, pick up a new clean um, procedure mask that you can wear during your visit. Um, folks are um, al allowed, if you will. Um, we are allowing one um, visitor per inpatient and one person to accompany people on their um, appointments here. But um, we do ask you to please um, don a mask um, during your visit. And beyond that, um, I just appreciate everybody's patience as all of the guidance changes and then we in turn um, adjust and, and pivot to um, make that work and make that available here at the local level. Mm -hmm. Dr. Tuami? No, um, I want to reiterate that still recommending that people become fully vaccinated. You can start your series uh, recommending that people mask in indoor areas because we are still in a place of high transmission um, and to stay safe and enjoy the lovely weather outside. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Christina Tuomi, the uh, Chief Medical Officer at South Peninsula Hospital and Dorotha Ferraro, the spokesperson for South Peninsula Hospital. Thank you both for joining us today and uh, spending you know, 40 minutes uh, talking about this. I want to thank all the callers uh, as well as Josh Crone and Simon Lopez back at the studio. It's uh, 9.39. You're listening to Public Radio KBBI. I'm Jay Barrett. Let's send you back now to the studio. <laughs>